Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. In your weekend sports car show, Graham Goodwin, this is not a flappy gums, just you and I <laughs> talking to ourselves, keeping ourselves awake episode. This is a full, proper, listener-driven Q&A show brought to us by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. How are you, my friend, compared to when we last spoke and you were sounding very under the weather? Uh, significantly better still you might get the odd cough from me and i'll try to mute it so it's not too disgusting but uh yeah significantly better planning for uh the spa 24 hours which is coming up uh, this coming weekend um and yeah looking forward to that some exciting stuff to come um be doing something i've never done before the spa 24 hours taking part in the road run um to spa town center uh, in an audi gt2 uh, which is going to be uh, great fun. But uh, we leave for that uh, Wednesday morning. But until then, God, there's a lot going on, MP. There is a lot going on. Big stories breaking today, more big stories to break later this week. And that all comes on the back of what I think we can probably accurately describe as, how can we put it, uh, incident-filled Salem's Six Hours of the Glen? Poop festy. It was a poop fest, Graham Goodwin. Uh, there was some great racing that we saw across the six hours. There was also some not great racing. Uh, there was some excellence in officiating. There was also not some excellence in officiating. Uh, there was excellence in technical inspection. There was not excellence in every vehicle that went through technical inspection. Uh, this had everything to quote Stefan from Saturday Night Live's weekend update skits. This had everything. Um, hey, our, our good pal Daniel Summersgill put together the questions for us, of which there are many, and of mm -hmm. which the vast majority are indeed about the sailing six hours at the Glen. Um, don't know if you saw the rumors on the interwebs. There might have been a slightly controversial. Not end of the uh, race, yeah. because the race ended in a perfectly normal fashion, unless, of course, you were watching it on uh, streaming here the whole time on Peacock in the USA, where they decided with three minutes left to go to cut to commercial right <sighs> as a pass took place to change the overall. Uh, oh, it was brutal. But anyways, uh, yeah, the race ended normally, Graham. There was a checkered flag. Happened to end under yellow, crashy stuff going on, Porsche, victory. And then we had some things that changed who got to keep the hardware for winning the race. So that's going to dominate the majority of what we talk about today. Okay. And uh, again, towards hopefully once we're done with Watkins Glen, you can learn us good more about this Aston Martin Valkyrie LMH initiative, yes. which you have written about and uh, full disclosure, as you like to say, there are many things that, uh, how should we put this? Went into your first draft that yes. didn't necessarily make it all the way through the final draft. So lots, lots, but weren't able to put everything out. But again, we're going to get to that. Um, yes. maybe that'll be uh, the, the close to the show, but why don't we kick off here with our man, Mr. Summersgill? Funnily enough, not only does he put, the questions together for us, Graham puts himself on pole question. with P one. Yeah. So take authority there, Daniel Summers Gill. I think you should. I'm going to read it out to you, mate. It's uh, Daniel says, and thanks so much, Daniel, for putting this together so quickly. This, this show did come together in rapid fire order. 
Uh, it seems, uh, he said, that every lap during the six hours of the Glen either had a multitude of penalties, mechanical black flags, along with some wonky decisions, race control, and poor driving standards from the AM drivers, brackets again, close brackets, made watching the race hard work. What are your thoughts, MP? Totally agree. Um, I, prior to the race, took a moment to count the the fine session documents created by our mutual friend Lee Driggers, right? He and his son Justin who put together fine, fine timing and scoring reports, quotes, uh, as it happens, minute-by-minute minute stuff during each session. I'll admit that I don't recall, Graham. It might have been free practice two during the event, but I did count, no joke, spot on, 50, five, zero penalties assessed by race control. I think 45 to 47 were track limits and nice. lap times being deleted. So again, of the variety of penalties, these are about as weak as they can be. But I can tell you that multiple sessions before we even got to Sunday's six-hour race, race control, busier than I can ever recall at Watkins Glen in particular, but it just seemed to be a, hi, we've told you what the rules are, what is expected of you, what is considered legal portions of the track to use while completing your laps, and illegal, and it wasn't three or five it was damn near 50. And so I just used that coming to the race, Graham, as a little bit of a indicator of, huh, the, the kids don't seem to be listening to the headmaster. Mm. And so when we got to the important part of the event, the actual competition part with the green flag waving, um, things then went sideways where race control itself seemed to have a mightily questionable view on how to conduct themselves. Augusto Farfus crashing on his own, exiting turn one, lap one, Graham, turn one, yeah, lap Lance one, Lance into that one, of an endurance race, he crashes on his own. Now, he's not the first guy, not the last guy, Not none of this is particularly aimed that the young Brazilian ace driving for what we now are referring to as the race-winning team, uh, BMW M uh, Team RLL. The problem, though, is the severity of the crash broke the right front suspension on the car. That made driving away from the crash, clearing the incident site, pulling off the side of the road, whatever it might have been, completing the lap and coming in mm -hmm. to effect repairs, was impossible because the right front suspension was so badly broken yet still attached enough to the car that his attempts to drive the car led to the front of the vehicle hopping and bouncing was really truly stuck in a bad way he ends up placing the car roughly the middle of the track corner exit so this is for those who haven't seen because we do need to set this up not everybody yep. got a chance to see the full race um imsa does split starts Prototypes, GT cars. Prototypes, fire down into turn one, off they went. Farfus, left in the middle, stranded. GT cars, coming to the line, had yet to receive the green flag. And the commentators are saying, there's no way this could possibly go green. 
stranded car, middle of the track, Graham. Not far left, not far right, dead center. There's no, uh, and they've gone green. What? And you then see a whole field of GT cars, of which there were many, more than prototypes. 57 entries, I think, some crazy It was number. 57, yep. Um, they fire into turn one and find a prototype stuck in the middle on corner exit. Thankfully, they all avoided Augustus. He, uh, Augusto, Augusto, sorry, my mouth is fighting back here. Um, he acknowledged after getting back to pit lane that, yeah, that, that might've been among the most harrowing portions of the whole thing. Having 30 ish cars bear down on him, if not more, right? Uh, what in the world was race control thinking? Our friend, and I do call him a friend, separate from his job with IMSA, but Bo Barfield, I am behind that guy 99.9% of the time. Usually if there's a decision to make, I'm in agreement with the decision that he makes. I don't know how, haven't spoken to him, but I don't know how they came to the decision of there is clearly a stranded vehicle in the middle of the road. We've yet to start the GT portion of the race. This vehicle is stranded which would suggest we do need to intervene with a caution to retrieve that vehicle. So again, you would think a caution would be forthcoming. We would not say, hey, all the GT cars, go fire down into turn one and figure it out yourself. But that is indeed what happened. So the very first thing that happened was a unexpected crash. The very second thing that happened, which sent the commentators just through the roof, and I think most anybody who watched it saying, yeah. what is race control doing? This is wickedly unsafe. And the justification for going green with the GT cars is not something I believe anyone can offer any answer, Graham, where folks yeah. would go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. The only answer is it made no sense. And then right after, full course caution. I don't know mm -hmm. what happened there. But this is how the race started, brother. Within 30 seconds, or might have even been fewer seconds, of this six-hour race, collectively, folks are scratching their heads going, what the hell is going on? And that just set things up, Mr. Goodwin, for the <laughs> five hours, 59 minutes, and however many other seconds going forward. And then... Well, well, we had all sorts, didn't we? I mean, we've had a couple of questions here from Lance Snyder on that front. And Lance says, penalties for working on cars in a closed pit, stuffing someone in the wall, backing your car back onto the course in a blind corner is exactly the same. A drive-through, maybe it's time to start making penalties that matter to dissuade some of the crappy driving, he says, that he saw on the WeatherTech uh, and the uh, Michelin Pilot Challenge uh, this weekend. I saw little of it. I'm uh, still trying to kind of rest up and... Uh, get prepared for what's going to be a grueling next three weeks. I did see uh, a move from uh, an LMP3 driver, sorry, um, that took out two Lamborghinis in the same corner. Jordan Pepper rightfully incensed, asking, why? What in the what? <laughs> if you were, if you haven't seen vehicles going into a corner. Two of them yep. happening to be Lamborghinis. Jordan uh, being a, a general member of that tribe. We have a situation where going into that corner, there would be no room to the left to make a pass. Yep. No room to the right to make a pass, but two Lamborghinis side by side. Critically, Graham, 
no room between the Lamborghinis to make a pass. So you have what? Five options. You can go left, right, yep. middle, yep. Yep. below if yeah. you're if there's a tunnel that we're unaware of, or over the top. Those are the five potential ways to pass. Since the underground tunnel thing hasn't really ever been a thing in racing, we can kind of count that one out. Um, yeah. Actually, maybe there's a six that I haven't thought of, but it's kind of going between. Uh, it's the going through. And so this is what we had with an LMP3 driver. And there, as I am told by our friend Ryan Caminiti, member of the Prude Listener Group, um, at he said, according to him, and this would having to believe that Mr. Caminiti Graham uh, frequented many of the bathrooms uh, at Watkins Glen, Ryan being a, a New York native, so Watkins Glen is very much uh, his home yeah. race. He sent me a photo, which we, I should share. Apparently in all, at least the men's rooms, the bathroom stalls throughout Watkins Glen International last weekend, someone had printed uh, full-color sheets that they have constructed and posted them in the men's bathrooms at least with a hashtag think of the dentists and hashtag save lmp3 and yeah. there is a photo of imsa president john doonan uh with little uh word bubbles of him saying help me save lmp3 i can stop this tell me why you love lmp3 don't let me kill this class and throughout the rest of the page here uh it's hashtag save lmp3 hashtag uh, dentists for lmp3 and then on top of one of the p3 cars uh the text what will the dentists drive <laughs> so and then there's other photos of toothpaste and uh someone being worked on at a dentist's office and their mouth wide open but uh very much taking the piss um but driving home the point of hey uh lmp3 might not be the greatest showcase for am driving talent and while the save the dentists or whatever thing might be a little over the top and a little bit on the nose too um we had yet another race where the downside of lmp3 was certainly seen granted there was also some poor driving standards in gtd same with gtd pro Mm -hmm. Same with LMP2 and in GTP. So uh, to Daniel Summersgill's opening question and some of the other ones as well, there were some terrible AM decisions made, including the one of the LMP3 driver who decided, uh, I'm going to try and go through, up, over, and you name it, the two Lamborghinis, and wiping them out for no particular reason. But this, to me, was just emblematic Graham of that free practice two session where it seemed like, Hey, we've told you what we expect and yeah. the vast majority of you just don't care. And we seemingly had about six hours of folks doing whatever the damn well, please. And some decisions as well from race control that had you going, this will not be remembered as one of IMSA's finest days by no means it's worse. No means it's worst, but this one was a, bit tough to swallow exacerbated by any of those at least here domestically graham watching flag to flag streaming on peacock where oh boy uh they sure like them commercials and they sure like going to them 
at some really inopportune times. So, uh, can we do this race over again? <laughs> yeah. um, I think it comes back, MP, to LMP3 has been getting a, a fair amount of the flack on this front. And I'm going to say this once, and then I'm going to move away from it. It's not LMP3. It's some of the drivers in LMP3. And, you know, I attend and commentate on multiple races with cars, LMP2 and LMP3 in the same race, GT3 and LMP3 in the same race. And do we have some assettery? Yeah, but it's not the general malaise that it seemed to get uh, with, with, with IMSA. And I keep coming to the same conclusion, which is, there's got to be a standard set. There's got to be in the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. I think the, the way forward here is some form of in-meeting rookie test for drivers that have not driven these cars before. We've had we have a fair number of people coming in, you know, with one or two or three races in a season. And I, I'll be blunt, it tends to be that they're the drivers that get themselves involved in accidents like the you know can you go in between two lamborghinis no you her can't um you know that was a dumbass move that was to a be great dad with. joke by the way the, the, you know we're not gonna let that sit right all by itself oh that was an amazing dad joke there <laughs> but um i think it's a simple one to fix which is you do have free practice sessions you do have test sessions and there can be a standard set that says yeah, you can come and race. You've, you've got the correct license. You've got uh, some racing experience, but you've not got experience in this series with these cars on this track. And therefore, what we expect from you is a set number of laps within a set parameter uh, set uh, for that session determined by um, the overall class pace and the prevailing conditions. And you've got to do it error-free. And if you can't do that, then the reality there is I'm sorry, teams. You've got to select a better driver. Uh, I, I'm really sorry. I'm with you the, 100% here. The, the, pro, the problem here is, MP, is LMP3 is going to go away at the end of this year. Then what happens to those drivers? Well, Are they going to go and do a support race, or are they going to be an LMP2 car? So there's the, the other thing, and I want to get through this and then get into the real heart of what we're sure. doing in the opening of the show, that being the penalty, uh, taking the win away from... Porsche Penske Motorsport and moving that over to BMW. Um, there's a area here that I don't believe is as well explored as it needs to be by IMSA and any other championship where such things are happening. And that is saying no. Now I realize that with the FIA driver ratings that yep. if you are rated as such that allows you to drive whichever specific vehicles in theory there should be nothing stopping you from stepping up from your gt car to a prototype or whatever again if your rating allows such a thing uh, the fia has said you're good to go where one example won't mention his name for those who know IMSA and watch the race and know who it is. I don't feel the need to mention their name and embarrass them directly, but mentioned during the broadcast that there was an LMP2 team that had a driver fallout, unable to take part in the race, and they were able to find another driver on short notice. 
by driver rating allowed to drive an LMP2 car. Experience-wise, done many IMSA races. Do they belong in an LMP2 car? Based on their on-track performance? Hell no. The fact that this driver, perfectly nice person, etc., etc., uh, was part of a package that they ended up showing during the race. And here it's so-and-so going off in whatever it was, free practice one, boom! Here's so-and-so going off. Again, whether free practice two or warm-up, boom! And here's the person spinning earlier in the race, boom! And here's the person just running into things in the race, and boom! There's more, right? You go, in a span of a weekend, they've built a highlight reel of you not being on the paved part of the track and you starting your stint with all the parts on the car and coming in after with not the same amount on the car. (laughs) And again, the driver in question, to me, there was no surprise, Graham, that this is exactly what was happening. Perfectly nice person, capable-ish in GT, at no point in time. Should be allowed in a P2 car. Had this been put up to, had all the drivers in the driver's meeting in LMP2, pros and the AM, said, hey, we're thinking about letting so-and-so step in and drive this weekend. Raise your hand for yays, keep them down for nays. I don't know if a single hand would have gone up. And yet, an opportunity to say, no, we appreciate you. We know the team needs your money. Um, we understand the whole business side, but team, eh, we're not going to do that. A missed opportunity for IMSA to say, driving standards. Do we complain about them during the race, after the race, Graham, having seen things fall to a level at whatever points in time that were problematic, or do we intervene and reduce the likelihood of those poor driving standards being demonstrated. I say this is wholly on IMSA for not stepping up and saying, no, we are, we are not going to approve you to drive that car. So we can pick it. And this is P2 brother, not P3. Yeah. So we can pick at some of the quote dentists and where will the dentist drive next year? Um, when you have this many cars on track, the majority of them wickedly fast, uh, I do think that a finer comb needs to be used to make sure that those who are doing the driving aren't feeling like your teenage son, daughter, or whomever in their first driving test out on the highway with six, six lanes of traffic going by at a million miles an hour and saying, Go ahead and, and merge. Go ahead. And you see them like shaking hands, peeing themselves, going, what? You don't want that environment during a six-hour professional endurance race. So, uh, again, we can bark at some of the drivers for sure, but also uh, I think we could have could have prevented some of these problems with a, a finer filtering of such. Let's move on, though, Graham, to the mm. bigger question or, or the, the bigger item post event item here and i know we've got a couple of well, questions let's, Which let's ones run through what the issue through? was issue was exciting finish you should say unfortunately finished finally under yellows but exciting finish 
and a fighting finish from Borussia to cross the line uh, as the, uh, the the checkered flag winners. But that's taken away, and you can explain exactly why in just a moment or two, MP. So the win going to BMW, their first win of the season, it means that we've seen wins now uh, from each of the four new GTP manufacturers in what is it five rounds i think that's right is it four different winners in five races yes cadillac's taken no well yeah cadillac's taken two laguna seca and sebring we had acura winning on debut air quote winning on debut at daytona sebring went to cadillac long beach that was porsche uh laguna seca that was Cadillac again. So we've had both Action yep. Express win and Chip Ganassi Racing win. That leaving uh, BMW as the final to get on the board. Yeah. So if you add in the WC's other cars with Toyota taking wins and now Ferrari at Le Mans, that means six of these brand new factory entered cars uh, designs have now won significant races. And that's a great start to the season. But. Uh, fair to say, fair amount of, let's call it jibber-jabber, uh, on uh, social media this morning as people woke up to uh, perhaps a change in a result that they hadn't been expecting. Take us through it, MP. So let me tell you how things were done, at least prior to this year, in terms of tech, post-race tech, as I understand. And if my timing's off, I apologize. But seem to recall one of the big new shiny objects Graham added to technical inspection really i think the gtp side is what inspired this and it was the use of laser scanning now again if this was done prior to this year then i apologize but i do seem to recall this being a new thing introduced uh, for this season but prior to that pretty straightforward thing for minimum ride height checking in post-race technical inspection no different admittedly than pre-race tech inspection or pre-event tech inspection right any car gt prototype doesn't matter indycar f1 nascar whatever each vehicle in whatever major motor race probably go through technical inspection at least two to three times per an event sometimes more the longer the event but very common for cars to roll through in some series they're required to go through prior to qualifying, prior to the race, etc., uh, etc. Et the methods on checking things like minimum ride height, minimum bodywork height, pretty standard. So you have these go, no go, I'll just call them sticks, just to, to give a bit of a, an image. It tends to be piece of tube could be aluminum who knows what each series might use for its checks but take a piece of tubing usually something that is hard won't compress won't bend something that's pretty pretty darn thick and solid and we'll cut a length of that and in the middle have some sort of could be metal could be whatever stick welded to it threaded attached to it And these are items that with the car on the tech pad at its preset, what should be its its ride height, you'll have the inspectors take these long sticks with a certain diameter tubing on it and slide them under. And 
since we're talking about minimum ride height, right? The car can be no lower than this particular amount. What you would expect is for that gauge, that stick with a specific diameter to it that is the height that should not be able to pass any more beneath the car, right? Get slid under. And if you're, I apologize, I said that the wrong way, should be able to slide that beneath the car. If you're unable to slide that beneath the car in the specific areas that are measured, teams know those specific areas on their particular class. Again, this is, I'm not leaving this specific to IMSA. I just want to let folks know this is a pretty standard process. If your minimum ride height is one and a half inches, that one and a half inch diameter tube on the end of the stick should slide beneath that portion of the bodywork. This case, bottom of the car, center of the car, in this very specific GTP instance, the actual skid plate that's mounted beneath the cars to strike the ground. Again, when the car bottoms could be under braking, could be if there's bumps on the track. We saw that a lot, Graham. Cars firing down towards the end of the long straight headed to the bus stop. Driver's right. There's some pretty noticeable bumps that have developed that the Porsches in particular were seen striking those and big sparks going behind. Weren't the only GTP cars, right? Saw Cadillacs do that a couple times, but driver's right, not the preferred line, but we saw that quite a bit. Um, but those skid plates are there in the bottom of the car to protect the bottom of the chassis. And so these are temporary items that get hit. You're going over a curb. This is where the contact would happen. These will get worn down in every race. There's a permissible amount that can be worn down, right, before you start getting below minimum ride height regulations. And so just to reiterate, these little sliding cylinder pieces on the end of the, the quote, sticks should be able to slide beneath the car. I'm not saying freely or super easily, right? might take a little bit of pressure to push them beneath skid plate here, body work there, wherever the minimum dimensions are measured, but should be able to flow through. It's when you go to push through and you get a dunk <laughs> and you can't where you go, huh, okay. Um, we have a, a situation where the car is lower than it should be. Now, a skid plate violation, bit of a different thing than just simply a ride height violation, Graham. So needed to characterize these two things. If a car has had a push rod deform a little bit or lost a shim, shims now get used pretty frequently for setting ride height on prototypes in particular, or if it's an older, just uh, knuckle style, changing flats, rotating uh, threaded collar on ride height to move the push rods up or down. Get a little bit of deflection there sometimes. Maybe the car took a hit. I've seen in the past in GT cars where maybe you had some contact up front, subframe got bent downwards a little bit. I remember, I think, Magnus Racing three, four, five years ago at VIR had a great result taken away because they said that they're, they were below ride height, below the minimum 
height of the car because of contact. IMSA disagreed. There was a whole big fight there. But sometimes, again, you can see a little bit of contact or, hey, we just pounded things too much, and there's been a tiny bit of deflection in a suspension setting or otherwise, and that's why the ride height of the car is too low. In this case, Graham, the, the real penalty is coming from the potential of lowered ride height, the potential of running below minimum ride height. So the issue here is not one of suspension settings so much as it is that skid plate the front of the car would be the the keel area somewhere near the driver's butt a little bit forward but the keel area being thinner than allowed you go well man we sure do regulate a lot of things in sports cars don't we why would you regulate the minimum thickness of a skid plate well if you're intentionally setting the ride height too low or if you're running in a areas of the track that'll wear that skid plate out at a higher rate than maybe it should, getting it thinner than it should be before the end of the race, we assume. In theory, you could run the car a little tiny bit lower. The car could be running a tiny bit lower, making extra downforce. Closer the bottom of the car is to the track surface, more ground effect effect is created more downforce also could help from a mechanical grip standpoint graham so the violation here is a thickness of the front skid plate violation too thin we don't know the exact amount we know that from porsche penske motorsports statement that they released on the good old interwebs uh, they're referencing this being a matter of a millimeter or so. Um, let me get the exact statement here. Following a post-race inspection at Watkins Glen, IMSA's penalized a number six entry, uh, citing that the front skid wear was less than one millimeter outside the legal tolerance. The rear skid wear was noted to be well within the legal tolerance. Porsche, Penske Motorsport, plans to collect all the data and follow the protest procedures. So I'll wrap here on this in just a sec, because I know we've got a couple other related sure. questions. But it's one thing to have set the ride height too low, and whether it's by intent or by mistake, and that gets caught. It happens somewhat frequently, more frequently than you would think. I, remember, I mean, there have been a lot of like pole positions mm-hmm. in IMSA, Graham, GT comes to mind in particular over the last six, seven years. Been a number of polls where you go, yeah, we're pole position. And an hour later, car number such and such will be starting at the back of whatever. And you go, oh, ride height violation. So ride height violations, not uncommon. That, though, as I think of things, and as I would hope our listeners would try and process things, that's a chassis setup error. Oh, again, you're, of course, going to try and get down to the minimum. That's where you get the best vehicle performance from. Not uncommon for mistakes being made, though, and the settings being slightly off. And again, all the other factors that I just mentioned, pounding a curb too much, doing this, that, and the other, things move a little bit in the, in the suspension where it could just be below, but you're going to get penalized. 
as I interpreted this, and I could be wrong, this sounded like more of a where issue than a you set the suspension illegally low issue with some of the issues mentioned again of boy the porsche seemed to be sparking a lot there could be questions of maybe the ride heights were just a tiny bit too low and for what they are mentioning they mentioned they were informed by imsa that we're talking about a one millimeter uh, less than one millimeter outside the legal tolerance so this is a tiny fraction of a fraction of measurement this isn't an inch this isn't five millimeters 25 mil right this is a tiny fraction but was this a byproduct of suspension settings being off therefore allowing the car to be too low lower than legally permitted and then wearing that front skid plate too much the rear as they mentioned at least taking them on their word plenty thick no issues so this is clearly a front ride height issue but was that due to striking too many curbs running over too many bumps those big showers of sparks that we saw again often running in a straight line um a thing on a setup pad that caused the problem graham or track placement causing Mm. the lowering this is the thing where we don't have the answer well there's there's an interesting there's an interesting reaction to this uh that came in through social media there's uh Fan asking perfectly legitimate question, which is understands the rules, but did one millimeter really change the race? Just saying, said this fan. Responded to by Conor De Filippi, who be- became one of the victorious drivers, of course, for BMW. And he says, uh, very politely, I drove around the exit curbs most of the race to avoid skid wear. We all had to manage the same rule. Exactly. And so here's how's this? Um, I won't tell you who this is from, but this is from not a, a super successful IMSA driver like Connor, but a super successful race engineer. Um, let's see. Uh, I'm just reading through some of this here. I I don't want to get into some of this because it's a little bit too revealing. But how's this? So the cars all have ride height limiting suspension components. Mm -hmm. They're called third springs, um, thirds. These are items front and rear, independent of the coilover spring and dampers. Granted, that's a bit of old technology today. It's more torsion bar but all of the cars have some form of ride height limiting device front and rear that manages the aerodynamic loading so these cars make thousands of pounds of downforce instead of putting huge torsion bars on all four corners or huge coilover springs that are hard as rocks simply to try and defeat the aerodynamic downforce from crushing the bottom of the cars into the ground and leaving the driver's backsides exposed came up with a pretty cool thing decades ago that allows the cars to actually run softer springs slash torsion bars so they can make good mechanical grip and corner well and all that kind of stuff but in particular in a straight line as that downforce 
moves the car lower and lower and lower. There are devices at the front and the rear that limit and say you can go no farther. Um, the tires as well, sidewalls of the tires compress a bit, so they're part of that whole kind of springing and ride height matrix as well. But beyond the curbing, I can tell you this, although, the like I said, there are suspension ride height limiting devices front and rear on every gt car ever i'm sorry every prototype every open wheel car basically these days if you do have an ability to run a car a little bit lower over a curb uh while cornering while leaning um with this gtp formula graham uh this is something where again uh confirming everything that came to mind for me from a friend who's won a lot of imsa races in super high-tech vehicles, um, you would absolutely ask for it. So to the question of one millimeter, less than one millimeter, does that really matter? I don't want this to sound like some sort of smoking gun because it's not, but it is an honest answer. With the GTP formula and the significant reduction in downforce compared to the DPI formula, the significant increase in weight 220 plus pounds and the increase in horsepower mm-hmm. 60 50 70 whatever the number is you have a car that has less downforce a significant amount more weight and more power these things are really hard to drive compared to dpi if we were talking about hey ride height and fraction by the race winner They had the potential because of this thinner front skid plate for the front of the car to compress a millimeter lower, get a millimeter lower to the ground. Would that have made a significant performance gain? I don't think anybody in the DPI era would say yes. Does it offer something? Sure. Something anyone would go, that's why you won the race? No reasonable person would say yes. In this GTP era, Graham? Mm Mm-hmm. This is something where every single team, if they could run their car one millimeter lower and not get penalized for it, would do it instantly because of all the aforementioned changes to this formula that make them damn near diabolical to drive. So am I saying, aha, Porsche Penske Motorsport devised a way to get an extra millimeter and we're hoping to never get caught? No, I'm not saying that. But this is not an area in this specific scenario where you can go, oh, it would offer no benefit. The potential benefit is one that every other team would seek if they thought they could do it. They have it and don't. And I'm not saying that the Porsche Penske Motorsports team sought it and tried to get away with it. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying other teams would say, yeah, man, if we could run however much of the race, potentially a millimeter lower up front we absolutely would because we're starving for every pound of downforce we can get so that's a real thing this is also graham and i want to hear your thoughts on this i've seen plenty of comments as well about seriously less than a millimeter and you're going to take the race win away there's no bop on legal or illegal well all right, you over here, you can be way out of compliance, and you, well, you not so much like... It's the rule. It's a rule. It's a rule. It's a regulation. A millimeter or a mile 
if it's out of compliance, it's out of compliance. Yeah. So the whole, yeah, but not much. You go, is that really how we want to do sports now? Well, yeah, you're illegal, but, but by how much? Well, the BOP says you can be illegal by this amount. So therefore you're like, that argument always disappoints me because it doesn't seem yeah. to really grasp the, the tenet of sport. But what are your thoughts on that, brother? I completely agree. I mean, a rule is a rule is a rule. End of. And the, it, and the other thing is, it's important to, um, yeah, yeah, I think you read out the Penske uh, statement, and they used a very interesting phrase, which was um, less than a millimetre out of the tolerance. The tolerance, okay? Not the, uh, the absolute regulation, the tolerance within that regulation, okay? That's different again. The reality is the car was not legal. End of. I thought Conor de Felipe's intervention uh, was polite and, and well chosen. The other one I'm going to chuck your way before we move on for, to a couple of other bits and pieces is the inevitability uh, after that um, post-race change of comparison with what occurred after Daytona. Yeah, and now, can, there are can we some, park, park there for just one second? Cool. Just because, no, 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 uh, and that's where I wanted to close there as well. But the thing I didn't finish up on and wanted to just circle back and, and uh, tie up a little bow on. So pre-2023 technical inspection, right? You would do the go, no go beneath the car with a little cylinder on the stick. And it's not uncommon, Graham, for whether it's minimum ride height, minimum body work height because sometimes those are different things right the regulations that says mm -hmm. this part of the car must be no lower than this uh right so the diffuser the tail of the diffuser for example will certainly have its behind up in the air a little bit compared to the nose of the car that'll be down and so it totally normal for there to be a variety of checkpoints around each model to make sure that you are not below the minimum ride height or body work height and for the little cylinders on a stick, it's pretty common to see racing series manufacture them in a way where you can either add pieces or remove pieces, make the diameter of them thinner or thicker. Maybe it's a, it's a higher point here. Well, you'll see them pull the stick out and add on a couple little pieces, click, 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 and do the same kind of pushing under to make sure it clears or doesn't clear. So that's a pretty common thing. But with what I think would have been done here in 2023, just to close the loop on the technical side, you would have had minimum ride height measured in the manner I just described. You probably would have had the skid plate taken off of the car. You probably would have had that skid plate measured independent of the vehicle off of the car right just taking a pair of micrometers and measuring the thickness of that probably would have also had a brand new skid next to it so you can do a little bit of a, a visual on that to go okay um this is either what a new one looks like this is what this one looks like they both look like they're manufactured in the same way there's nothing wonky or, or different here there's is there any big damage, right? Can we see some sort of huge crashing strike that would have somehow altered the skid plate uh, from standard? Okay, so you then probably would have had, since we have the new laser scanning technology, 
beforehand, right? They would have scanned each car before, bottom of the car, top side, you name it, and scanned afterwards as well. And so that is a pretty powerful thing, Graham, if we're doing an appeal, which Porsche team has said that they're doing, to say, okay, IMSA, what what evidence do you have? We know what you're saying. It looks like afterwards, and you're saying it's Mm -hmm. thin by too thin by less than a millimeter, but you'll have IMSA in theory would have imaging of the car pre-race and post-race to say, yep, we can see that it did go in compliant and according to our imaging and our measuring. And you know, there's three ways to basically do this. Check it with a stick, do an off-the-car measuring, and also, again, a bit of an eyeballing with a, a standard mm-hmm. skid plate. Uh, maybe even asking for the skid plate off the sister car, which didn't go for as long, right? The car had uh, some sort of hybrid problem uh, and weren't able to run. But, I mean, if I'm IMSA, I'm saying, hey, go grab that off that car. I want to take a look at that. Because, you know, do we think a car is going to be perfectly fine and in compliance, Graham, for, you know, five hours and 55 minutes of the race and then magically the last five uh, have contact that makes it too thin and out of compliance? Probably not, right? I mean, if you're going to be hitting, you're going to be hitting. And mm-hmm. who knows for how long it was that way. But I mean, there are a lot of ways, if I'm an IMSA technical inspector or any technical inspector faced with this kind of stuff, uh, I'm trying to confirm what it was before, what it was after, what this circumspect piece looks like compared to a control piece. Hey, did you have a sister car running? Let's take a look at its front skid as well, even though it wasn't running as long into the race as the other. And in theory, probably would not have had as much wear. So the the last thing I'll mention on this, and then we'll talk about the shank thing and move on wherever else you want to go. The swiftness of this decision should not be taken lightly. So we're going to talk about Acura, Meyershank Racing, Rolex 24 at Daytona, and cheating. This was a case where, given the opportunity to say, hey, we're going to impound everything, take them to the NASCAR Technical Center in North Carolina, and we're going to do all kinds of big post-mortem there, and we'll get back to you in a couple days. Um, this was seen, I'm assuming, Graham, uh, IMSA's whole technical team. I don't know if this went all the way up to IMSA CEO Ed Bennett or one step below to IMSA President John Doonan or one step below to Mark Raffoff. Right, right. I don't know how high it went, but I can tell you the one thing that stood out to me was how swiftly this decision was made. Mm-hmm. I think that has to read into things because we can infer that based on the expediency of this decision and announcement and overturning of the win and handing it to BMW somewhat soon after the race would lead me to believe IMSA feels there's no question about whether the Porsche was out of compliance. So that's just looking at the speed at which this happened and the lack of we're going to take extra time. Uh, Final results are uh, unofficial and and under whatever and temporary, like 
this seemed to be done pretty quickly. And whenever we see that in motor racing, it leads to the belief for folks like you and I, Graham, that, yeah, they didn't really seem to have a whole lot of question. Um, no. So you can protest because that's in the rules. But I, based on the speed at which they made this decision, brother, would have limited reason to believe BMW will be anything other than the winner of this after that appeal is heard. Yeah, I, I think you I think you summed it up uh, neatly. It's does not tend to indicate there was a lack of confidence in their conclusion, does it? It does not. Um, Let's move on, MP. A really quick... People are comparing it with Daytona. To my mind, uh, but I'm keen to hear from you, the two incidents are not directly comparable. And this comes down to one basic question. Why was um, an instance of... Uh, pretty in-depth, call it what it was, cheat um, from the car that took the win at the Rolex 24 Daytona, not punished with losing that uh, that win, uh, whereas this was punished. And, uh, well, I'm keen to hear what your view on this one is. I've got a pretty well-formed view on it. Yeah, and I'll get through this quickly. I believe I said at the time, in whichever episode of the Week in Sports Cars that we did following the revelation that the number 60 Marshank Racing Acura RX-06 ran with illegal tire pressure settings that they intended, or that shouldn't say intended, that they covered up, that they faked uh, to send false information to IMSA to give the appearance of running higher tire pressures than they were actually running. Uh, I believed IMSA should have taken everything from them they took points they took money i think um they took a number of things they did not take the victory away they also and this it pisses a lot of people off myself included let them keep the rolex watches which i just don't understand uh but they were allowed to keep some of the the, the spoilings of uh, of the victory but i completely disagreed and i believe you did as well with IMSA mm-hmm. in their decision to strip them of a lot of things that are meaningful in terms of the championship, but not the actual honor of winning the race. Uh, and they also got to keep the stupid watches that are worth a lot of money. Um, I believe IMSA was totally wrong, but that's a decision they made. And I understand why they made that decision. And so in answering this, I'm going to revert back to how I believe they came to that decision. The time involved mattered. This wasn't a post-race thing that was discovered. I think we have learned, though, this might have been a report, this might have been alerted internally among the Acura folks during the race, but this was not brought to IMSA until, I believe, more than a week later um, by Acura self-reporting on one of its teams then i'll admit i'm not remembering remembering the exact duration but whether it was a week after however long it's a couple weeks after the race um when imsa made this call it had been enough time to where everyone in the world believed and was fully convinced that marshank racing won the race 
victory advertisements were bought and wherever else and you know the full promotional cycle had been done the world had no question as to who won that race and so weeks later week later two weeks later to me it almost doesn't matter once you get that far out it was actually five weeks later five weeks holy crap yep but even if it was just a week later i I still think enough time has gone by new cycle has run its course promotional site right i enough time goes by and i think it's a little bit hard to take that back and alter people's perception of the event that has nothing to do with what's correct the correct thing was to take everything away but ultimately they said look enough time's gone by folks know them as the winner we're not going to want to change people's perception in perpetuity they're still the air quote winner but you get no points and more or less none of the spoils of winning okay got it i think there was another thing as well graham that went into that decision that i don't know if we discussed uh in that post penalty show i think part of the reason for not dropping all of the hammer on them was embarrassment this is something where imsa had been gamed they had been played and we think without evidence right we don't know but we think this might have been a game that had been going on for a little while and was missed and missed and missed super quick parallel back in 2012 i believe it was our good friend late friend uh justin wilson won the texas indycar race and remember there was a post-race penalty don't remember if it was the night of or the next day whatever it was bo barfield happened to be the um uh race director then but i remember bo had asked me sent me just a little email or text hey do you have any photos of of uh, justin's car from like you know first practice session on friday on pit lane or whatever i'm like yeah i'm sure i do and back then Cars were new, Graham, and IndyCar had very specific aero packages for the oval races. Bigger ovals, uh, less pieces, smaller ovals, more pieces to make more downforce. Very long story short, there was a specific aero package for all cars to use at Texas and things that they specifically were not allowed to use that would add a little bit of extra downforce. Uh, The Dale Coyne Racing Team, Justin's team, truly made a mistake they misread misunderstood whatever it was they had i think one or two of the smaller modest but important downforce making pieces on his car and this is what bo was asking for but i think before maybe setting the final penalty asked if i had any photos and i did and he responded back with a string of curse words i'm like oh what's going on he's like damn it they were illegal from the moment they hit pit lane they went through tech graham friday morning whatever it was that event friday saturday sunday i think it was they rolled through with those pieces on the car errantly weren't caught by the technical inspector inspectors went through again i don't know end of friday saturday morning before qualifying after qualifying pre-race went through i i forget the number but i i think it was like five or six times Bo said that car was pushed through tech with those wrong pieces on and were never caught. And these were not like, oh, you got to crawl into the car and get a flashlight and a mirror and maybe you can see it. They're right there. Like for the world to see plain as day. 
And again, I'm not picking on IndyCar's technical inspectors. Just mm-hmm. they made a mistake. His car was illegal from day one. They certified it five, six times throughout the weekend. Post-race victory teardown said, uh, hey, uh, hmm. And so what did they do? I, again, I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember the exact thing, but I think it was a monetary fine. It took some points away, but they didn't take the win away. And part of the reasoning was we're somewhat complicit in this. Did that downforce, that extra downforce, Graham, allow Justin to win the race? He would have lost it without, I don't know. I don't think so, but I don't know. But it was IndyCar's, right, head of the competition side basically saying, yeah, they were legal. No question, but man, we should have never let that happen. And so instead of stripping everything, they took, again, the spoils away. I think, no one's ever said this to me, but it's just a feel. I think that's part of how we got to, we're taking everything except the the win itself from Myershank Racing, Graham, because uh, it was a little... You know, uh, IMSA should have caught that in theory. Yeah, it's it's it. It's an odd one, isn't it? The one I can remember, and we will move on, revolves Corvette, and it was I think the first WEC. Uh, is that Rocky? Yes, he wants to be there fed. Uh, been a while, Rock. Um, first pole position for Labra competition with the C7R uh, Corvette. And they lost that pole position to post-race technical inspection. And it was, I, I can't recall the immediate, uh, the, the, the actual name for the, the, the component, but there is a valve fitted to the fuel cell. Is it an inversion valve? Mm. That if the car turns over, yeah, it will seal the fuel tank. And it turned out that was not the homologated part. It was the part, by the way, that had been fitted to every single Corvette going all the way back to C5R, but for whatever reason, it was not the part listed on the uh, homologation documents. They lost that uh, that result, despite the fact it, that that part had been through scrutineering on every single Corvette that had ever cleared an ACO scrutineering bay including all the cars that won them on however many times same part yeah these things happen but ultimately i think we are in this case dealing with apples and oranges um reality is porsche out of compliance subject to appeal bmw win the race i think that's it i also I don't think it's any more complicated than that is it no and i just i what i hope is the treatment of five weeks later as you mentioned five week later penalty approach yeah to Meyershank racing does not become the new what about right well what no, about that, that's oh but it's right, so you go oh really okay so does everything get measured against this kind of unicornish scenario where you go oh, they were cheating no one questions that they weren't just cheating they were trying to do their own spy <laughs> spy thriller of of circumventing yeah. the rules through true illegal clandestine efforts yeah. were reported by this they should have caught it this was a loophole that imsa should have closed down before a loophole imsa knew about that could be manipulated but hadn't locked down um and then five weeks again i think this was just such a special thing and how it was treated 
I still don't agree with it. I think sh- they should have had everything taken away. But I also think IMSA had to own their own role in this. Even though, again, you can't blame them for someone cheating. You can blame them for not having strong enough uh, measures to prevent such things. But I can see how they got to the decision they made. But good Lord, folks, can we just call an out-of-compliance car out-of-compliance without having to rope? Like, look, this to me stands in isolation as it should. Now, our friend Ryan Terpstra, you know, is raises a great question here kind of circles in some IndyCar talking about a glaring driving standards penalty at the most recent IndyCar race that wasn't called um that should indeed be something that we look back historically and go okay uh this one driver did something really stupid and knocked the other driver off the track everybody's in full agreement and yet race control did not act yeah that's a case where you go okay we need to look at consistency of those calls and find out if this truly stands out. Trying to use this unicorn of a thing that happened uh, with Myershank Racing as the control to measure all future violations against, let's please not do that for all the aforementioned yeah. reasons. Let's move on. Huh. Um, yes. We'll, we'll grab a couple of questions in a moment. Let's, uh, let's have a quick chat about... Well, our big news of the day, certainly, uh, which is uh, we trailed it last week's show, actually. And my apologies to readers who've been repeatedly clicking on Daily Sports Car. I, I think, as I explained earlier in the show, I've been a little bit unwell during that, that, that show and, and beyond. So it's taken me a while to get to the stage where this was, was kind of camera ready. Um, the headline is, Will Aston Martin's Valkyrie Hypercar program hit the track after all? Uh, the answer, by the way, to that question um, is it looks very much like it will. Um, as Again, as we said at the top of the show, there are some aspects of my original draft story I am holding back on. Um, and there's a variety of reasons for those. I hope to be able to bring more of this forward uh, in due course, as I'm sure my press room colleagues are now scrambling to pull together strands that they may or may not have had uh, this story. Um, I don't know. Don't care really. Tell us, tell us what you can about it, brother. Well, what I can tell you is, looking, it's probably important, MP, for us to remind readers where this came from. This was the very early days of hypercar. Uh, Toyota had committed. It's fair to say that the the new formula was struggling somewhat, and so um, at Le Mans uh, back in 2019, there was the announcement that Aston Martin indeed were going to join the hypercar. Um, class with the their LMH car based upon the road-going Valkyrie sports car. And this was one of the early parts of the initial hypercar rules. You could have something based on a prototype. You could have something based on a road car. That led to a suite of changes being made to the original regulations that, amongst um, other things, meant that... Um, I think from memory, the original Toyota had to be kind of recast. Uh, excuse me. <clears throat> and certainly, um, the uh, Glickenhaus uh, was forced into an engine change uh, because the intended Alpha power plant uh, that the initial design had couldn't make the horsepower uh, that the then um, 
current regulations demanded. It's 800 plus, I think, from memory. Um, of course, we then get into convergence because a little bit of reality, financial reality hit Aston Martin. Uh, this program went away. And at one point, it looked like this was going to be um, both factory and customer cars. And away it went. Uh, they Aston Martin continued to develop the car. I actually saw close up, actually, on the road going Valkyries for the very first time uh, just a few weeks ago. It's a track-only AMR Pro spec car, which is, I think, the version that we expect this to be derived from. Um, what have we got? We've got a thousand horsepower V12, six point five liter. Is that right? Six point five liter. Yeah, I believe so. V12, fabulous looking and sounding thing, uh, but it's a thousand horsepower that now needs to be adapted for a formula that produces about two-thirds of that power range. Um, and that's not a simple thing to do. So what have we tracked down? We've tracked down that there is um, an either already underway or imminent privately funded engine program to achieve that. There is absolutely no reason to do that unless you've got a reason um, to use that that engine in that car, because it's it's not the engine being putting something else, uh, in that car in hypercar. Um, I've done a lot of sniffing around with a lot of the moving pieces uh, in this uh, story. I'm not going to name the individuals or uh, and or the team slash teams involved. I have spoken to Aston Martin. I'm still awaiting a promised... Um, statement on their view on hypercar. They're not going to give us any comment on this particular story. I wouldn't expect them to. Um, it comes down to, you'll know this one, MP, as a journalist, your level of confidence as to whether or not you've got this right. Um, I'm a pretty much 100% certain that I've got this absolutely nailed. Um, I'm absolutely confident of a number of the moving pieces involved in this um it's uh, the fact that we've gone with what we've got will now make it a little more difficult for us to nail down some of those moving pieces but i think i'm reasonably comfortable in saying that if everything goes to what appears to be now a plan if not a program i think we can expect to see aston martin in the fiwc's hypercar class by 2025 oh yeah. Yes, please make that happen. Yeah. Let me. We might. Go ahead, brother. Rocky, shut Something up. Sorry. A little bit different again. That this could be a major brand, and with absolute respect to Jim Glickenhaus, and as much respect um, as will be mustered in this conversation for Colin Collis, um, the. Uh, this would be the biggest brand likely to feature a hypercar without a hybrid drive. Hummer. Because my understanding is this is not going to be a car that would feature a hybrid powertrain. Die Hard 2. stand to prove, prove wrong, but um, uh, it would be, it's going to be a very interesting genesis to this program to see just who emerges as being part of this. It's also, by the way, uh, another part of the critical path towards more... Um, contemporary changes in the FIWC. Because, of course, what do we know about the way in which 
the WEC is going to develop uh, with its class system. It's going to be two classes from next season for the next wee while. That's going to be Hypercar, and it's going to be LMGT3. How are the manufacturers going to be selected for LMGT3? Well, there's a whole range of ways in which that's going to happen, including uh, the teams and the manufacturers' uh, loyalty to the championship and, indeed, a relationship or otherwise to a hypercar programme. And Aston Martin were certainly on a potential cut list for LMGT3. My guess would be, and this is an absolute guess, um, is that this has just pushed them to the point where they're pretty much a racing certainty to be staying part of the FIWC and LMGT3 if they've got a customer uh, that wants to do it at that level. Me throw That's some, it. Right now. Let me throw some other Lamont, Lee Mans and Weckety Weck related questions at you, and then we can say farewell. Indeed. Uh, Nipam Shah says, when can we expect Graham to finally see the Lamborghini LMDH revealed? Uh, I think imminently. I mean, we know um, that the car was meant to be revealed before Le Mans. The factory opted to uh, wait for that um, because of the prevailing emergency. You might remember yes. uh, the Grand Prix at Emila being cancelled with the emergency in the local area. Um, I don't think at life. that stage there was a chance to to defer that to um, Le Mans uh, because the programme, as you'll recall, MP at Le Mans was pretty darn full. So I, all I could say is it has to be imminent. We might have an Italian Weckety Weck race coming up sometime soon. We might. Which um, we, I'm, we're likely to see the Assotto Freschini there as well, by the way. The Dario Franchitti coming right up. Yes, I indeed. cannot wait. Uh, why don't we go to our pal Oliver, the uh, Trawavasaurus himself, as Rocky jumps up on my chest and blocks the microphone and puts his butt in my face. <laughs> uh, with protons shift aligning with Multimatic to Ford, mm. Graham, will this be the end? Patrick Dempsey's name in Weckety Weck. You think there might still be a next generation of Porsche with him involved in Weck? Also says similar question for Proton drivers, but more importantly, Porsche ambassador Fassbender. Michael Fassbender. Uh, I think the answer, uh, Ollie, for this one is there's two stories doing the rounds at the moment about uh, about Proton. Um one is, of course, about Ford. One from my friend and colleague, Daniel Lloyd, talks about um, Proton having auto-ordered GT3 Porsches. Um, I think if those GT3 Porsches make their way into ACO Rules Racing, and I believe they will, that's mo most likely to find them in the European Le Mans series. Um, Michael Fassbender spoke to Michael at length at Le Mans, and again with my somewhat curtailed early week at Le Mans, I've not yet put up the interview with him it it was the final year or this rather is the final year of five with his porsche program um he would like to be back and racing in some form or other but because of course that's going to be without that factory funding there's no guarantee whatsoever that's going to be remotely the same kind of level i hope he does stick it out he has been a real positive force in that paddock uh, lovely guy um patrick dempsey Again, the link there is firmly Porsche. Might we see Dempsey Proton Porsches somewhere other than the WEC? Possibly. Might there be something in IMSA? Possibly. Um, but 
my my guess at this stage would be it's proton uh, ship is sailing in the direction of GTP, uh, where they'll make their um, their debut pretty darn soon, and WEC where the car comes along in Monza in two weeks' time, uh, with GT3 Ford Mustangs of the WEC. I absolutely cannot see that any uh, private team is going to be running two different makes of GT3 car in the WEC. Can't see that as being a viable option in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and with GT3 Porsches elsewhere, and for that matter, Cup Porsches in uh, the Porsche Carrera Cup Deutschland, and for that matter, uh, the Mercedes-AMG and GTD in the United States. So a whole range of things going on with them, with a couple of common threads behind those programs, one of them being Porsche, because that's been a traditional part for Proton, and the other one being Multimatic with the, the link to the Porsche 963, to now the Ford uh, Mustang GT3. And for that matter, I think there's some kind of um, uh, workshop sharing. I think with Multimatic for the US uh, end of things, you might tell me different MP, but I think that's a thing. So do I think it's going to be at the end of Patrick Dempsey's name in the WEC? It could be. It could be. Um, Will there be another generation of Porsche in the WEC? I believe so. I think that everything that I was um, discussing at uh, Le Mans, it looks as if at the moment Porsche are considering all options that includes another team to field two or possibly more likely uh, two one-car teams. We know that Golf Racing are interested. A long chat with Mike Wainwright um, uh, at Le Mans and they had a uh, fine run um, at Le Mans this year and I keep hearing mention of a team that is currently not running in uh, ACO rules racing or indeed in Europe uh, that might be the additional team for Porsche remember the way this is going to work is the manufacturer will nominate their customers to be their entries uh, in the FIWC I think it's inconceivable that we won't see Porsche GT3 cars on the grid next year. Let's go to Stephen Gate. Says Peugeot's pace and performance at Le Mans is both surprising and welcome. Was it true progress, Graham, or circuit specific? Mm. We're about to find out, aren't we? Um, cars will rock up at Monza in a couple of weeks' time. You're right. It was a massive step forward from them in terms of, well, pace and visibility. The cars seem to revel in those changeable conditions. Uh, it was a delight to see it. Uh, no one likes to see a any team uh, that operated at that kind of level struggle the way that Peugeot appeared to have been doing for their first um, efforts in the FI World Endurance Championship. Um, it does, though, speak, MP, to something that you and I said in the lead-up to uh, Le Mans, which is if you're going to, to, to build a car to this set of regulations... And you're going to optimise it for anything, you'd optimise it for Le Mans. Well, one of the circuits that's probably closest to Le Mans in terms of its its layout, um, the what it imposes on the vehicle, is going to be Monza. And again, we're going to find out pretty quickly whether or not that, that form can be translated into what looks like it's going to be an absolute zoo. Uh, at Monza can't wait for that one yeah and 
Steven also closes by asking if they revert to their pre-Lamont exploits or the rest of the season, would we see an arrow concept change for next year? I mean, it's a much bigger topic and <clears throat> we're pretty deep into the show, so we might save a, a deeper dive there for a future episode, Stephen, but I'll just we, say we've this. We've got some conversations to come with Peugeot and we'll, we'll see what they want to tell us because uh, they will have crunched all their data by now. I mean, and there's also just the practical side. Mm-hmm. They went in this radical direction in yep. the belief that it would offer them a significant advantage. It has not. They did Correct. well at Le Mans, no question, but not, holy cow, well at Le Mans. You could enter BOP into the equation, but it, that wasn't it. Uh, Monza, with long straightaways, aero efficiency, again, should play to their favor. If the WEC calendar was all Le Mans and uh, Monza-type circuits, Graham, I'd say stick with it based on the struggles they've had and the fact that they'll be going to places like Coda next year and spa, which is a a rolling, amazing place and going again, there are enough places on the calendar where you go conceptually, those tracks don't fit. So if the majority of the circuits were ones that would allow them to exploit arrow gains, despite BOP being what it is, I'd say stick with it, at least from the outside. And I always love these these wacky machines like this. But from the outside, I would be lobbying very hard internally to say, okay, uh, let's try something a little bit more conventional because at least trying to make this thing work at every round to then give us a championship, hell, just a win seems like a mm-hmm. massive bridge too far. And so since it has not popped as a big, wow, we outfunk everybody and everyone's playing catch up, but the exact opposite of like, hey, we went to one race and we weren't terrible. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's where you have to look a little bit bigger picture and go under this rule set, this regulation and how things are balanced. This is not going to deliver us what we were looking for. So why keep beating our heads against the wall by trying to be different when uh, this era we're not allowed to exploit this the way that we'd hope? Um, why don't we get to one or two more here and then we close wherever you want. George Martin says, with all the factory teams having issues with at least one car during Le Mans and Hypercar uh, and an even bigger grid coming next year, do you guys think that the factory efforts will try to add more cars to the race in 24, more bullets in the gun in case of issues so to speak how do you think that'll play out graham knowing that i don't see the option Uh, i mean the the numbers aren't great on that front i mean we're expecting a 38 car wc grid we're also expecting what's been regarded as being a minimum of 15 lmp2 cars um that leaves you uh what is that nine yeah cars um that has to include all the non-LMP2 automatic invitations. The reality is that there is going to be space for a mere handful of additional hypercars, should they be the cars that are selected. Um, I think I'll have to go back and check my my maths on this one, but it's somewhere around the three, four, five cars that will be available for a selection committee to choose and by the way that would include any future garage 56 car remember so you know could porsche bring an extra car maybe could cadillac yeah maybe 
could BMW, maybe, but we're not talking here about another six or seven cars. We're talking, my guess would be an extra three or four min, uh, maximum, rather, uh, for the FI World Endurance Championship. Uh, you know, I think we're looking at something of, it's mid-teens, we know, for LMP2, and about the same number, maybe a few more, for GT, and the remaining cars on the grid will be hypercars. Uh, so we are talking something like half the grid will be in the top class. Yikes. Yeah, that's a lot. I mean, the other, and this is the uh, obvious overstatement thing, you and I can enter 10 cars in theory. Yeah. It's the ACO that says yes or no. So <coughs> is there there's race? the desire, but then there's also the fact that this is not an open entry thing. Uh, and if we're talking automatic entries, you know, that's really not so much where we, uh, that's not so much of a thing in the top, top class. So yeah. No. Uh, could we see Acura's next year? Yeah. Uh, we pretty confident. Possibly. I think more likely 25 is a straight answer. We could see them next year. We could see them the year after they'll be there. Eventually we know that as Hondas, by the um, way, not as accurate. Hey, stop it. Uh, good old, uh, Lamborghini. Some baby bulls are going to be there. We yep. should have Alpine. So the yep. numbers BMW. will be up, but it's sort of Yeah. The Dario Frankie will be too. there. Uh, but in terms of beyond the added marks, will there be added entries within those marks again? Um, not sure. If I, that's think, I think, there. I think the answer is, it becomes less likely. Um, and there's an element less necessary is the straight answer. Uh, you know, I think, do I think we'll see manufacturers wanting an additional car? I think they probably will, one or two of them. But I don't see it being a bog standard thing. It's not every manufacturer has seen that as being a universal positive. Many, many manufacturer programs uh, down through the years have talked about how they felt that by adding that car, it has diluted the effort on the existing cars. Many manufacturers have said that in the past. I've heard that from Audi. I've heard that from Peugeot. I've heard that from Toyota uh, in the past, and or versions of that truth. Uh, so it's not necessarily seen as being universally a good thing in terms of team effort. Let's see. Let me stroll through a couple here, and then we'll say farewell. Uh... Nagaraj Shinoy talking about BOP process and how uh, things leading up to Le Mans might have put a couple of dents in the faith of yep. BOP being able to eliminate sandbagging and political interference. I can tell you that I'm mailing out uh, some BOP stickers today. Uh, we won't mention to who, Graham, but uh, oh, we, we know who. Oh my God, that was that was some call. Yeah, uh, that yeah. I'm sending <coughs> some of those out today uh, to Europe. Um, curi- he's uh, curious. If we should expect smooth sailing from now on, or if we might have some more farting around on the LMH, LMDH balancing. The, 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 the inevitability is there will be some shenanigans, if you want to put it that way. I, I want to put it this way. Um, um, referring back to the, 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 this is the point that most people are talking about, which is, was the race fixed for um, Ferrari? We, we covered this, I think, more than adequately last week. But there was another point that occurred to me here. Um, which is all of that comment was about Toyota and Ferrari, and it almost completely ignored everything else, okay? So if, let me just put it this way, if the ACO 
were trying to fix that race for Ferrari, which I fundamentally don't believe is the case. Okay. This was our not 37 kilos, but 13 kilos argument. If you're looking to do that, why would you make the Ferrari 24 kilos less likely to succeed against every other single car on the grid? Diversionary tactics. Yes. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah. And again, we raised it, it, last me, week. It's, it's, it's just too easy, too lazy a narrative. Yes. And I want to take two steps away from all of that and just say, yet again, please don't ignore the fact that that was one of the most awesome Le Mans 24 hours of the last couple of generations. It was a really great race. I mean, you know, it really did just come at you time and time again in all sorts of different phases. And as you nailed it last week, MP, ultimately, Ferrari didn't just have to beat Toto, they had to beat the race. And that is a really tough thing to do. And if you want to talk to a team that knows how tough that is, talk to Toyota. Yeah. And look at how many times they had a crack at this one before they finally nailed it. Um, it is no small thing to come back with a brand new car, a brand new car, um, and come and put in a performance like that. Extraordinary stuff. And, you know, yeah, we can start talking about BOP shenanigans if if one car keeps coming up and winning every single race, you know, under no um, under no pressure from anybody else in this formula because that's not the way it should be. I will come back to a point that Thomas Loudenbach made uh, when we were developing this uh, the, the, this rule set and the nine six three was in development, etc. And he said, and I'll happily remind him of it if it ever comes back down to it. Manufacturers are going to have to wean themselves away from feeling as if they've got a right to keep winning year after year after year because that's not what this formula should be about. It should be a meritocracy. It absolutely should be a meritocracy. But what this formula is supposed to do is to allow that competition within an achiever, rather, a more achievable window. You can't legislate with BOP for a poor team and a poor car. What you can do is to make parity more achievable with excellence. That's what it's about. Yeah. All right. Two questions to go first from snatch tractor. Yeah. Uh, and then we're going to close with Stephen gate. I'm going to pose snatch tractors to you and then okay. I'm going to get up and go get a delivery, which I believe is my wife's birthday present. That should be at the well, door. Hey, so you'll hear some creaky stuff. And if I'm not back quickly, it means I didn't actually deliver it to the door and I had to go get it. So uh, then just take Stevens and I'll join you in a sec. Uh, Snatch Tractor says, great to have you guys back. Well, thanks. Snatch. Uh, where do you see Garage 56 going mm -hmm. in the future? Uh, and he also says, also, it was good to see that as Rocky walks across me, blocks a microphone and puts his balls in my face. Um, Lovely. Yes, he might want to eat. Uh, also, it's good to see that Frederick Sose was at Le Mans this year, and I, not only do I second that, great to see him out in the paddock backside of the uh, garages, and mm -hmm. I don't remember, Graham, it might have been just inauspicious. It was a Tuesday afternoon, Wednesday. There was nothing of any significance happening on track at all. Happened to see Frederick there, and despite this being some sort of point in time during the event where there should have been throngs of people filling the paddock, yeah. there was nothing going on to warrant that. And yet the sight of Frederick led 
just a crush of people to come running over to see him and say hello and just Truly the energy and love like yeah. that that was one of the that was so cool to see that here's a guy random yeah. point in time during the day with nothing going on and everybody within seemingly a hundred feet noticed and saw him and made a beeline to go say hello that's the way the world should work uh, so is. I'm handing off you to you. I'll, I'll talk a bit about yes. that. I'll talk a little bit about. Um, I'm going to go snatch the package. If if you're not sure who Fred Sose is, by the way, Fred was uh, or is rather the core amputee um, uh, after a terrible flesh eating virus uh, took the extremities of all four of his limbs. That was behind SRT41, uh, which back in the day was an LMP2 car. It was an open top Morgan. Uh, Oak Morgan uh, LMP2 car uh, fulfilled the Garage 56 slot, and Fred um, finished that race with the first Garage 56 car to bring that home. He then went away. He established an academy um, with uh, mobility impaired uh, racers, and two of them came back with an able-bodied driver, uh, and they finished the race again in 2021. This time, the closed top Orica 07 inspirational man lovely guy um you know absolute fan of the sport student the sport and absolutely delighted as you were to see him and say hi again for the first time in a couple of years um snatch director asks where do i see garage 56 going in the future uh at this conversation with john doonan um when they brought the um the backup car to brands hatch we sat and talked about this over a cup of coffee and one of the things I congratulated John on was I think it's completely transformed part of the opportunity that is shown now for Garage 56. It is this innovative car thing, and, and we've defined that in a variety of ways down through the years, and it generally has been defined by technology. Um, in the case of Fred so say he changed it again in terms of the social access uh, that's been now opened up to a whole new range of people that you'd never before have dreamt could have competed in the 24 hours of the morning. But the NASCAR Garage 56 effort did something else again, and it showed the power with something put together that well of this astonishing event to bring groups of fans together, to bring people who follow in a bubble, as often we all do, one form of motorsport together to see what their car can do, their people can do, in a completely different competitive environment. And I thought that was stunning. And a variety of uh, opportunities have, have been suggested as, as a, a possibility to maybe. A couple of the ones that I thought were particularly interesting, one might be more difficult on pace, and that's the Aussie supercars. The other one, which I think does leave the possibility of both something that looks different, goes different, and has the opportunity, potentially, to slot in some of that tech difference. What about Super GT from Japan? And, and in this new era, I sort of see that as being something that maybe when we get towards the 100th race or some other opportunity, whether or not there's, you know, one of the great makes that has been, you know, behind Super GT for very many years that wouldn't that be something a bit special uh, to actually bring one of those, you know, those iconic cars somewhere they've never, or that's, that's, it's not they've never raced before, cars very similar to Super GT cars have, of course, raced 
at the one before, but in the modern era, you know, these uh, silhouette carbon chassis, carbon tubbed cars, I think that again would tap into something very, very special indeed. If I could wave a magic wand to make something happen, that would be the next one for me. Can I, can I go ahead and throw in my suggestion of uh, the McMurtry? I think it's called Ooh. the little jet-powered five thousand miles an hour, at least in a straight line, but also like what the fastest everything to go up the hill at Goodwood. Like, granted, I don't know if it lasts twenty-four minutes. I don't know if it lasts 2.4 hours. Um, but hey, like I'm just saying, if you want to talk about vehicles that would have everybody wanting to go to Lamar to see like that. Yeah. I was I was there, was obviously uh embedded, brought there specifically to uh help with the Garage 56 program. Um I know this is going to come as a crazy shock. Not a big NASCAR guy. Never been. Wasn't really going there as a, quote, NASCAR guy, Graham. Right? Was going there uh, with IMSA, to be honest. IMSA's uh, the one that said, hey, could you come there and help us with some things? Was happy to do so and did. But went there having met nobody from the Hendrick side. I'd met Chad Knaus once or twice before, but. Knew nobody from the, the Hendrick side. Never been a NASCAR guy. Don't really give, well, you know, it's never been my thing. Um, I think I'd maybe seen the cup, the modern cup car last year uh, run at uh, Indy on the road course, Graham. So had seen it before, but, you know, not super up close. But just mentioning all this because I went there with a specific mission to help uh, on the IMSA side do some content, do some other things report back home around this garage 56 NASCAR thing thinking this was going to be cool and interesting, but meh, no one was really going to care. Um, nobody locally would think much of it, right? This is the lowest tech vehicle on the property at an event where we get together every year, Graham, and celebrate the peak of, of sports car technology. And I was completely blown away that it was totally the opposite and folks absolutely loved this yep. bizarre creature that didn't fit, that didn't look like anything there, didn't sound like anything there, and was just ballsy and brassy and <laughs> right, just obnoxious, but in all the best kind of ways uh, you can be when you're obnoxious. And it was beloved. And it so was. that... I just wanted to mention all that because I think that should be the criteria since the ACO and the WEC in particular have cribbed a bit of the Garage 56 concept, original concept, and rolled that into their mission for where they're trying to take the Weckety Weck as a whole right? Yeah. Originally it was, let's come up with a radically different design. You want to play in this extra entry. Then it was, Hey, can we do a hydrogen powered car or something yeah. like that? And again, a lot of ambitious garage 56 entries that you and I have reported. Hey, they're going to do this. Hey, this isn't happening. There's <laughs> been high ambition. Hasn't always been realized, but what we have seen though, Graham 
is the ACO and WC have said, well, let's just really try and make some of those high ambition things instead of a one-off car for demonstration purposes, let's try and build that into our DNA going forward. So by year X, we want to be fully hydrogen or fully this or like, okay, cool. So to me then, that takes a little bit of that, in my mind, that need a way to make Garage 56 this true weird creature that fits some sort of future tech ambition. Just bring something that is so fun or inspirational or something where folks go, oh my gosh, (laughs) I got to go see this. A NASCAR running at Le Mans? Wow, that was actually super cool and folks couldn't get enough of it. Brother, I ran into more people who asked me, noting that I was wearing a Garage 56 hat. Those freaking hats, Graham. I had more people ask me how to get one or could they have the one on my head yeah. than anywhere else I've ever done anything ever. And I've worked for some cool teams and some cool series and had some yep. cool hats. Brother, folks just wanted this stupid hat that says G56 on it more yep. than anything. And I'm like, wow, I never would have guessed. But if that is capable of this with a NASCAR cup car, what would a Super GT machine or a McMurtry or, again, I don't know what else. But I do wonder if that is the direction to take Garage 56 since the both series or organizing bodies are trying to express the higher ambition technical evolution in the actual future rule sets themselves, not just as a one-off demonstration run at Le Mans. I I tend to agree with you. Um, There's one other thing I think I'd like to chuck into the mix on this one before we say goodnight, which is... Not every technology and not every vehicle is suitable for the challenges at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. And maybe, because quite often the technology we're talking about here is not yet mature enough to deal with a 24-hour race. But what we've got is an astonishing stage. That's what you were just describing, is this astonishing stage for development, enthusiasm, everything. And maybe what it's time for is to learn a lesson from another event. And you just mentioned the McMurty. Um, what about a technology time attack on race morning? What about a one lap? Go for it. You don't have to last 24 hours. You just have to last one lap at Le Mans. A true hyperpole. A true hyperpole. Any technology. Um, you know, go for it. Make it the absolute pinnacle of ultimate performance anywhere. Um, now, it comes with its risks. There's no doubt about that. You'd have to find some way of managing that risk. But that, to me, could turn into an absolutely global event in its own right. Am I crazy in thinking, Graham, that part of what I would love to see at Garage 56 uh, selection in the future, I, I, it's at least here we call it run it back. Like you finish playing a basketball game, uh, you finish doing whatever and you you lose or, or you just, you want to go again. It, it, the phrase is, all right, let's run it back. Play another one, do it again. I wonder, like, I don't know. Is it the 1988 Lamar winning Jag XJR9? I don't know what it is, but part of me is like, 
on fresh Michelin's low down yes. force. The yes. uh, the slats on the on the rear wheels to improve air. We're not going to roll out the WM Peugeot. All right, we know that thing's going to blow up leaving the pits. But like, <laughs> and I might be going a little bit too far back technology. <clears throat> but part of me is like, oh, what if we did? an audi r8 uh run it back garage 56 where you're like all right christensen you're not done yet we're gonna go for 10 buddy and uh i don't know who else we get but that'll probably never happen but part of me wonders like if there are some old amazing cars that we know could still do 24 hours and might yep. be even faster with more modern dampers and tires it, and who knows it's like it's a weird thing isn't it i mean but, you know I, I hope you took the time to go and see that exhibition i certainly did uh, the astonishing exhibition in the in the Le Mans Museum, which, by the way, if you're still around in that area, is still open um, until the start of next month. Why did they uh, have a Nissan GTR LM Nismo GT MRL GT1 Nismo LMR out in front, trying to entice people to come in? <laughs> if anything, <laughs> that, that, that it's like mounting a. a severed head in front of a museum <laughs> going like oh yeah come on in but, but you, you look at some of the cars i mean like you know the bentley just still looks fresh still looks fresh and it's 20 years since that car won the race and yeah are you, are you kind of talking a slight kind of almost resto a resto mod yeah and version. i'm not saying you radical radically change it but like mm-hmm. hey there are probably some cool there are probably some amazing Le Mans 24 winners or similar that folks loved and are iconic and or mm-hmm. newer fans, right? We I heard that all the time. Stephen Kilby. Oh, I never got you who went to the museum. Oh, I finally got to see this car, which yeah, I never yeah. saw I mean, run it, it, originally. It me. I mean, I've known, Stephen is 28 years old now. I've known Stephen since he's been 15. And it still surprises me the things he's never seen. Still surprises me. Well, he's because, half an idiot. You know, he just doesn't pay attention very much. So that's probably the reason. But, but kidding aside, though, but yeah, I don't, again, I, you know, am I totally serious? I don't know. I'd love to see it. But yeah, to me, have fun with Garage 56. This year showed us that just yeah. doing something fun really resonated. And if you make it stand out, if you make folks yeah. want to film that specific car among the 50 to 60 others, and it stand like you're doing something right. If you if you approach it in a way, Graham, where folks know they're going to get an amazing endurance race, the greatest race global event in motor racing annually, but also know that oh, what are they going to choose? Because they've set a trend of it being so fun and cool and amazing. I think they struck something here. I hope they act upon it in the I right way. I tell you exactly what they should do. I'll tell you exactly what they should do. I think you've got the seed of a really good idea there. In nine years' time, we'll have the 100th race. Not the centenary, but the 100th race. And I think a Porsche 962 on modern tyres, and with whatever fuel uh, regulations you choose to put it in, will do one thing and one thing only, and that is it will show progress. It will show how much progress has been made from a car that still today looks modern, that's what you can achieve with Garage 56 as a, as a kind of resto mod, if you like, is you can show, despite the fact that we all of us seem to have this downer on what we've actually got, you know, expect this or it's, it's dumb down there. The reality is these things are still rocket ship fast. And I think if what you did was to show the peak of where we were 
40, 50 years ago. And how that now compares, not just in terms of speed, but in terms of efficiency, then, ladies and gentlemen, what you've got is the true message of the Le Mans 24 Hours, which is its relevance. That's the point. What if there, you've got something. What if there was a Garage 56 class? And I realize it is air quote a class, but a class with one car, I don't really consider a class. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, what if we have Ix and Bell? in a uh in a 962 what if we have dindo uh alan and tom and an r10 what if we you know let's pick a couple cars from standpoint eras and then the next year maybe you do gt uh, again i don't know we could we could run through this all day but it's because we love it let's close on this graham posing this to you from our pal Stephen gate so apart from the absolutely fabulous race what was your favorite moment of the centenary le mans week with all of its festivities, exhibitions, and demonstrations? Uh, two or three, uh, so apologies. Um, this is the longest episode we've done in a long time, so don't apologize. I'm, I'm perfectly happy This for is that. for all the folks who complain our, our shows have gotten too short. <laughs> the first thing is, it was first time in 23 years I spent Le Mans week with my son. Yeah. And James was our runner, making tea and coffee for the TV team. Didn't make me enough, um, go ahead. But it was an absolute joy to just spend time in that exhibition, time in the paddock, you know, a little bit of wandering down pit lane with him. You were well um, proud. That was so awesome to see. But it's, you know, that, that for me was a big deal. Um, that exhibition, so many memories and so many cars I'd never seen before. And... You know, to see the circuit in such good condition. By the circuit, I mean them investing in the spectator facilities, them investing in things that will make it a more world-class event moving forward. Because not everybody harks back to it being the kind of slightly shady, dusty, muddy, you know, traditional bit. People want a little bit more comfort and glamour and shine and i think actually what they've done has been really well done the moment for me was <sighs> lap one and as that developed into the first 20 minutes and i can remember at one point coming off mic uh with uh it was myself it was Aunt davidson and it was uh, martin haven in the booth coming off mic catching Ant's eye, he came off mic, and I can't remember exactly what the words were we said to each other, almost hugging and doing it, which was, this is absolutely bloody brilliant. And it was that moment that all of a sudden, all the uncertainty, all the cynicism, all of it had gone, because you know what? It worked. The whole thing worked. It came together, and it gave us something We'd been hoping and probably not believing would happen. And we had an awesome 24 hours of Le Mans. A truly um, appropriate race to celebrate a unique occasion. You know, I, I, I watched with envy from afar the the lead-in to the centenary Indianapolis 500. I wish I'd gone. Still wish I'd gone. Um, but the ACO, for all they get a lot of flack and they do, sometimes from me, I thought did an utterly magnificent job 
of pulling that together as a truly world-class event and we were treated to a brilliant world-class race as well uh, into the bargain and everybody trackside I think will have felt at least a part of that and everybody that was watching in and listening in I'm sure enjoyed it too that was for me that moment 20 minutes in with with Ant was you know um, it was quite an emotional moment wow that's awesome brother you know, there were a couple things that stood out for me. Uh, one of them being my last time there in 2016, my podcast was five weeks old. Wow. And this show didn't exist. No. Uh, coming 18, back, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Was it 20? I don't know, mate. <laughs> I think it was January 18. Yeah, okay. Um, going back and the amount of people who said, Hey, you're that guy. And I'm like, and I'm like, yeah, you're that guy. You're uh, no, no joke. They usually mention you first, which is amazing. Graham, <laughs> Graham's, uh, Graham's, um, uh, got, uh, 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 face, uh, mouth flapper, flappy gums guy. You're the sports car guy. Graham, aren't you? I'm like, as a matter of fact, I am proud to be. And just the amount of people, no joke, who were like, hey, love the podcast, listen to the podcast. Like, it's a crazy thing. It is crazy. Now, this, this is not meant to be modeling or whatever else, but I think I mentioned this to you while I was there. I think I've only mentioned this to maybe one or two other people. Lamar, I'd never fully expected to go back. Did it 10 years in a row. It was amazing. Yeah. One of the great highlights of my career and never really expected to go back. Uh, thankful, obviously, to have done so, but um, I realized on the flight there and did get a little misty-eyed that it represented something rather amazing in my life, in our lives at home, insofar that since cancer entered our life, uh, my wife diagnosed the, I think, end of August 2018. We're coming up on, you wouldn't call it an anniversary, but we're not too far away from five years of being still being in this fight. Uh, it occurred to me that since then, obviously I spent a couple of years at home focused on that, but since then I've been able to get back, Ram, do just about everything else that I had done normally beforehand, going this event, that event, covering all kinds of things. Lamar represented kind of this one last untouched thing in my life where cancer had never intruded, had never slowed, stopped, hindered. And it was just flying there realizing like, wow, I've been, I've done basically everything else I've done before, before this arrived. This is the last one and only place though, where it is never intruded. And it was really amazing being able to go and realize that, yeah, while well, we're still in the fight, wife's doing amazingly well, but um, we're still in this, that I can go and not have to worry and not be, you know, in the throes of all the, the mental anguish or whatever it is, strife, drama, etc. So, that did stand out to me like, wow, this place is like a little island that's been protected in our, in my life. My wife never been to Lamont, but that stood out to me and it was really powerful. 
And so that did shape my view of the event f- going forward of like, enjoy this because I'll admit, while I loved all the ones I'd done before, it was nose down, ass up 20 <sighs> plus hours a day of work. Um, yeah. and I, you know, maybe it was 18 hours of work per day instead of 20, but I did take more times to stop and try and enjoy of the couple of things to close here in Steven's question about favorite parts. Uh, I didn't make it over to the museum, unfortunately, but, uh, I don't feel like I missed much cause I've seen most of those cars before, but there are a couple things that really stood out. One was being there watching overhead when it turns out that uh, the garage 56 NASCAR pit crew won the pit stop challenge <laughs> and watching that and filming that and then going down stairs down into the garage and watching each pit stop happen afterwards and see them in the rankings and where they were and ended up winning among all the GT cars and just the elation and these kids, you know, they're all seemingly 25 or younger, but these kids you didn't know a thing about Lamar beforehand. And I don't even know if they fully knew about it while they were there, but they were flown in to do a job and did the job amazingly. But seeing them brother standing on the podium at Lamar yeah. with their little trophies and, uh, Donovan, the Jack man holding up that 40 pound Jack overhead. Right. And being cheered by hundreds of people like ugh, having been there many times, seen many, all kinds of amazing things. That was among the most human things I can recall where you go watching these kids who had no idea what to expect being there and celebrated, having won something for themselves and being cheered and hailed. Like it was so beautiful because it's so outside the norm. So that was amazing. Being there with my daily sports car family was another big highlight sitting right next to you guys in what, I guess has become my traditional seat there. Yes. Thank you for preserving that for me, by the way, but sitting there with you guys, just to my right, being able to give you guys crap. Um, (laughs) and, and it coming right back was awesome. Steven Kilby. I mentioned to him how proud I was to see him when I was here last seven years ago, he was a really good worker bee, but a kid, under yeah. your direction and doing his best, but a kid third or fourth on the depth chart of seniority doing his best, but no great expectations beyond that to see him. Now we, I saw you like twice yeah. <laughs> the whole event. Yeah. You would pop in, you popped into the media center once or twice, but you were flat out in the TV compound doing what you were there to do. And what I saw was Steven running daily sports car and yeah. all of the senior right. veteran reporters and photographer, right. And seeing this kid who he'll always be a kid in my eyes, but absolutely seven years ago was a pup drinking from the proverbial fire hose, trying to keep up and now doing a beautiful job with, with great poise and character and, and care, like running this operation with, five six seven however many people across lordy and pedro and everybody um that was a beautiful thing to witness it nothing to do with cars on track but just an internal observation the thing i enjoyed most it's what i always enjoy most is and it's my own private event is shooting the photography side 
And so I didn't get to shoot a bunch leading up to the race, but I spent a large portion of the race trackside. When I woke up from my nap Sunday morning at whatever time it was, I was basically trackside and on my feet until more or less the checkered flag. And I enjoyed that so much. Some of the photos, which I still have to sort through, are not half bad. So I'm glad that I still got a little bit of it. But man, there are a lot of amazing young photographers. But of the time trackside and shooting and just enjoying myself, Graham, one of the parts that was the best was being with Skippy. The amazing Uh, Andrew Hall. And just, like, he did 192,000 steps. This, by the way, uh, lest lest we forget, because we do, we just always ignore it because it's just, it's Skippy. This is a man who can't feel his own feet. Can't feel his own feet. Yes. Wears braces on his legs, hands as well, dealing with the muscular degenerative disorder but never moans never Never moans moans. walks everywhere and just him because well he's from down under so that that's already you're already a a star it's a challenge well he he, it's it's full-time taking of piss and giving (laughs) and just being able to spend whatever amount of time trackside with skippy it might have been a half hour at most i don't you know whatever um I think we were, where were we? Arnage, maybe. Regardless, just being able to be there with him, solving all the world's problems, moaning about everything, just taking the piss out of everybody possible, even those who didn't deserve it. They, they were not spared. It's little things like that, brother, where it's not this specific car at this point in time where this thing happened. It's the little grace notes of the Stephen Kilby rising to this great place. Uh, being trackside with Skippy, nicknamed Quarter Mile, because he got uh, tabard number 1320, 1,320 feet, a quarter mile. So he's our new <coughs> drag racing hero. <coughs> being part of the Garage 56 side with meeting a bunch of folks I never knew and getting to see them thrive and have so much fun. Like Jensen Button. I didn't know Jensen beforehand. I got to do a number of things with him. What a fun, passionate, hilarious, like you go... You're the best. I would never, I, not that I didn't expect that, but I never knew him. And I'm like, all of a sudden I'm like, I love you, dude. You're hilarious. It just Jimmy Johnson having a blast. Uh, John Doonan, like doing his usual insane amount of work on and on and on. I really tried to take time to enjoy this, uh, in new and different ways. I don't know if I will go back again. Um, but if I don't, I can tell you, uh, I, I have completed coverage trip number 11 got a lifetime of memories it's all good right i think that's time to wrap up isn't it i gotta say thanks to everybody who popped in the questions thanks in particular by the way to daniel summers girl for turning these around so very quickly uh if you've enjoyed a show this long congratulations if you haven't what is luck. wrong with you first of all what absolutely is wrong with you um we're going to say thank you, of course, to Cooper Tires, to the Justice Brothers, and to TorontoMotorsports.com. It's a busy next few weeks in sports car racing, starting next weekend with the Spa 24 Hours, the biggest GT3 only race of the year. Uh, and then beyond that, WC and ELMS get back underway. Uh, I'll be at all of those, and MPNO is uh, going to be on the road as well again soon. Thanks again to Marshall Pruitt, 
Um, I'm not going to thank myself because that's just self-indulgent. He has been Marshall. I've been Graham. This has been the Week in Sports Cars. Thanks to Graham Goodwin. Thank you. Um, uh, Rocky and Rosie played a part. And uh, you, if you'd been just a, a, a couple of moments earlier, you'd have actually heard the yowling Oscar coming in to welcome uh, my dinner uh, in here. But uh, I think that got that, that got filtered out. This has been part of the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. We will be back with you with a week in sports cars and I hope another listener question guided uh, show next week. Join us then. <laughs>